0: Thanks, Lainey. And thanks for everyone sitting up the front of the room. This is fantastic. Last week I um, politely told some people off for sitting all the way up the back so that they could encourage Ben as he talked. I didn't realise we we're going to have a flowing on effect, so this is fantastic. I hope that as you guys um, feel the sweat as the the, um, the spring kind of sets in, we head towards summer, you actually realise that that's actually a part of Christian love and that being in your church is really important, that um, you're, you're close enough to smell one another because uh, that's the way that we do fellowship so <laughs> totally totally encouraged now that i've grossed you out um we should launch in although i do want to kind of reiterate what eliza was saying before the deadline for NT mission to sign up at that website is this thursday really want to encourage you if you haven't done that yet to do that um like you saw from the video fantastic time where we get to learn how to be on mission with each other uh, but that's my plug um, how about we shift gears and i pray as we begin Father in heaven, we thank you now for this time to freely meet uh, under your word, to to hear it and to learn what it has to say to us. I pray that you'll soften our hearts uh, to appreciate the law in all its fullness and what it does in pointing us to Christ. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Coolies. We've been in the book of Deuteronomy all this semester and one of the reasons that we did it, um, (coughs) pardon me, was so that we would have a proper appreciation of the law of God. I think usually in, in Christian circles uh, we don't have an appreciation of the law of God and so we have kind of the, these wrong conceptions uh, of what it is and what it's for and that can mean that the way that we live our Christian lives can be very different and sometimes actually very, very unhelpful. Uh, and so what I want to suggest is that there are a number of ways to view the law. I've come up with three of them. Uh, and for those of you who I know, some of you here in Reformed circles, I'm not talking about the three use of the law. It's completely different. These are just three different ways that you can view the law. Um, here's the first one. I think the first way that you can view the law of God, particularly in Deuteronomy, is as rules. Um, they're things to follow, things we must do for God to be happy with us. Um, and it just kind of kills all of life and takes away all of the fun. Uh, and so law is bad. Now, now this conception of the law is the way that the Pharisees sort of viewed it. They actually kind of had a very high opinion of of the law, but they they thought of the law as rules. And so if you remember in a place like Mark, chapter 7, Jesus critiqued them and said, You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, treating as um, commands of God the traditions of man. And so everything became about doing the right thing and ticking the right boxes. So it's rules. And this is where most uh, people who aren't Christians stop. This is how they understand the law and the Bible and then how they kind of view Christianity as a result. But it's also the place where some Christians stop as well. Uh, I, I believe in God. I believe I have to follow him. I have to do these onerous rules. And Christianity is really just not joyful at all, but I just have to do it. Um, the second conception is not rules, but Relationship. Uh, and this is what i hope we've been seeing as we've worked through Deuteronomy particularly as we hit chapter 5 and we saw the 10 commandments and how they really find their fulfillment in those two great commandments of loving god and loving people the two hearts there in the diagram and really this view of the law is is good because it rehabilitates our understanding of the law on its own terms and how it understands itself so paul in in Romans 7 will say that the law is holy and righteous and good And the reason that that's the case is because it reveals something about God and how we relate to him. It gives us a description of how to remain in right relationship with God. And those statutes, all of them, the rules, the decrees, things about fields and oxen and that sort of stuff, have their centre in those two loves that I mentioned. Uh, And I was still struck by an illustration that Ben used a couple of weeks ago where he kind of said, you know, the first commandment, have no other gods before me. Can you imagine your wife saying that to you and kind of like, oh, you should have no other women before me? And you going, oh, that is such an onerous task. I can't believe you're asking that of me. It's so unreasonable. When actually we go, of course, that's completely logical. In fact, that's a good thing that we want. And so as we see the law, what we start to see is some of the goodness of what it is. It's not just good. It's desirable. It's sensible. Something that we want to follow. And so, what we have in the law under this conception is an offer of life and blessing. And the summary is that the law is good. But there's a third conception of the law, uh, one that I think we need to be appreciative of to understand these two, and that's as revealer. Uh, The law happens at a certain point in the history of the world, what we'll call salvation history. And it plays a particular function in the way that God responds to his people and brings about salvation for the world. Uh, the thing to understand as we read the Bible, this is a really key idea, um, is that the Bible is not static. It tells a story and it has a trajectory and it heads to a certain place, that place being Jesus. And so you might hear the phrase thrown around a bit, certainly if you go to NTA you'll hear this, progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Bit by bit, God shines more and more light on the room such that eventually we see it in all its fullness and who do we see in the middle of it sitting on the chair? We see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that means then is as we look at the law in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of 66 books in the Bible, we need to view it in light of Jesus, the full revelation of God. So, you know, you might be like watching, I don't know, like a, a, a romantic comedy series or something. I don't watch them, but, you know, you guys might. And, and you know, like in season two, Jerry is dating Sandy. And, and, and then, then you kind of move through and they break up and it's all really sad. And you get to, to season five and now he's dating Mandy. And, and, and to, to look at the law and just kind of go to him and, hang on, aren't you dating Sandy? So it's kind of, no, no, that happened in season two. We're in season five now. Um, that has an impact on what's happening over here, but it's not the same thing. And so when we come to the law, we need to appreciate that whilst it tells us some things, in light of Christ, it's going to show us something slightly different. And so what that means then is we need to work out what place the law has in the story of salvation of God. And that's the next three weeks, because we're about to hit... um, the end of Deuteronomy, here's a structure, it's similar to Tim's, there's some slight differences, it doesn't really matter, uh, but this is just for me to help me clarify. Uh, if you remember Deuteronomy, is three speeches, uh, and, and the second speech really is the substantial part of the book, because that's where Moses tells us what the law is, uh, and it'll become known as the book of the law. And for the next three weeks we're at the back end of Deuteronomy, and today we start at the end of the second speech, where Moses lays out the blessings and the curses which Laney just read out for us. Uh, And it's in looking at these blessings and curses that we see a particular thing that the law reveals to us, who's in season five, and it's this. Anyone who relies on the law for a right relationship with God is under a curse. Everybody who relies on the law for a right relationship with God is under a curse. And we see that in the nation of Israel And the way that we're going to look at that is to first, if you've got your outlines there, look at the law in the life of Israel. So let's start. Let's have a look at chapter 28, verse 1, because it's in verse 1 that we see the basic principle. It says this. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Now, we see the same thing in verse 15, except now it's stated in the negative. Have a look at verse 15 there. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. So here's the basic principle. Obedience to God's law leads to blessing, but disobeying God's law leads to cursing. Pretty basic, helpful, great. And what this shows us is the conditional nature of the covenant with Israel. Now, covenant, don't be scared by that word. It basically is just a formalised relationship between two parties. best way to think about a covenant is marriage. It's where two people make promises to one another. And one of the things that we've seen in previous weeks earlier in Deuteronomy is that that covenant relationship between God and Israel was established by the gracious intervention of God. They didn't do anything to deserve it. On the basis of God's unconditional promises to Abraham, God stepped in and created that relationship. It was unconditional. But even though that's true, what Deuteronomy 27 and 28 tell us is that for that relationship to continue there are certain obligations that Israel has to fulfill. So the creation of the covenant relationship, unconditional, but the continuation of the covenant relationship was conditional. Israel had to obey. And so to help motivate them to do that, Moses puts before them both the covenant blessings and the covenant curses, those things that God will do for them and to them, depending on how they respond to him. So let's have a closer look at some of those blessings and curses that are meant to motivate them. Now, have a look at verse 3. It says this, You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Now, have a look at verse 16 now. Uh, 16 to 19 here's an overview of the curses Uh, you'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed the fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks you'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out now, when you put those things up next to each other, like I have on the screen there, it becomes very obvious that the blessings and the curses are polar opposites of one another. You imagine the best possible scenario for you in your life, that's what it is to be under the blessing of God. You imagine the worst possible scenario of God and uh, of cursing, that's what it is to be under the curse of God. And so one of the things we'll see here is that God's blessings consist of abundant prosperity in the land. Whatever you do, wherever you go, uh, it will turn to gold in your hands. You won't even have to think about it or try. It will just be success after success after success. But God's curse, on the other hand, is the opposite. Wherever you go, whatever you do, it will turn to dust and ashes. Now the thing to understand as we look at those two things is what the blessings and the curses centre around and that's life in the land that God has promised to give his people. And so this is an unavoidable thing that to be blessed by God you have to be in God's land under God's rule and what curse looks like is to be kicked out of that land and made destitute and destroyed. And life in the land, really, I think, as we read the whole of chapter 28, which we won't do for the sake of time, is it kind of revolves around two things. It revolves around prosperity and abundance and security and occupation. Now, now, we've already seen prosperity. We see it up there in the screen. Everything that happens in the land is just abundantly prosperous. It's fruitful. There's no miscarriages. Everything happens. It's just wonderful. The crops always come. There's no drought. But, but then the curses, it's the exact opposite. Everything gets destroyed. Nothing works. The ground, if you remember from the reading, is is, is iron and, and, and hard, and, and so is the sky, and just there's no rain, and, and everything's dust. So that's prosperity. But what about security? Well, have a look again at the passage here. What does it look like to be under God's blessing and secure? Well, verse 7, The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. Verse 10, The peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. So their place in the land won't be threatened by other nations. But what if they're under the curse of God? Well, have a look at verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction but flee from them in seven and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. No longer feared but horrid. Um, Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals and there will be no one to frighten them away. And we don't have time to read it all, but in your own time, if you keep shifting through this passage um, from kind of verse 27 onwards to the end of the chapter, you'll actually read some of the most disturbing things that you'll read in Scripture. And it is a picture of horrific conquest and ultimate exile from the land of God. And so just as the blessing of God involved Israel in the land, being blessed by God and then spreading that blessing to the nations... God's curse will see them ejected from that land and scattered throughout the nations, worshipping other gods, ruined and separated from relationship with him, returned to the state of slavery that they were in in Egypt before God rescued them. In other words, it's a reversal of all the good that God had promised to do for them and had done for them up until that point. Horrific. And remember, the reason Moses outlines those things is so that they will be motivated to obey the law. He says, this is what you want, and this is what you want to avoid. And so what he does is he puts a choice before Israel, and that choice is to obey or disobey God. And it's not an inconsequential choice, is it? It wasn't like your choice to study arts instead of engineering. Okay? Now, you might be like, oh, hey, that was a very important decision for me, but let's be frank, you could have chosen either and I'm sure there would have been good reasons to go in the direction that you kind of wanted to, but I chose engineering because I didn't want to end up working at Macca's. But like, you, can have, you, can, you can have your own reasons. But, but ultimately, what you choose to study at university isn't actually going to destroy the well-being of your life. This does. Because the things at stake are not just what my preferences were, or the things that I was good at. Was this a comfortable life or a less comfortable life? Oh, my pay packet will be this much bigger or or whatever else it is. The thing that was at stake was their life itself. And so to make this even more clear to Israel, what Moses does is he instructs the people when they get into the land to conduct a ceremony uh, to remember the covenant that they have agreed to obey. And that's what all of chapter 27 is. So we're doing this in reverse order today. Now, and basically, what happens in chapter 27 is that the nation is supposed to go to a valley, and there's two mountains, one on either side. And the people are going to split up, and they're going to stand on the mountains, and then they'd get their Anglican on. And what they would do is they'd have a bit of a call and response. So, so have a look at verse 12 there. Um, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebar to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And then we see there in verse 14 that the Levites were to recite to all the people of Israel 12 curses. So, example, verse 15. And Do you want to do a bit of call and response? This this wasn't planned, but okay. let's do this. Let's pretend I'm the Levite. Um, Cursed is anyone who makes an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of skilled hands, and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say... Okay, cool. I'm not sure whether we just accidentally put ourselves back under the law. Um, We'll talk about the problem with that in in, in a little while. But they would yell this across from the two mountains to each other. And as they did that, it was supposed to become abundantly clear to everybody involved which mountain you actually wanted to stand on. You wanted to be on the mountain of blessing, rather the mountain of curse. But what's really interesting, I think as we look at these two chapters and we see the choice before them and the obviousness of that choice, I think we notice something about the fact that Israel won't choose the right mountain, even though it's a no-brainer that a kid in kindergarten could choose to do. Now, I think there are three things in the passage that might suggest that they're going to choose the wrong mountain. First of all, have a look at the ceremony. So this is chapter 27. Look at the way the ceremony is set up you're led to think that there's not just going to be 12 curses declared, but 12 blessings, right? But where are they? It's decidedly wonky. It's asymmetrical. They're missing. Second of all, have a look at chapter 28. It's a long chapter. What do you notice about the length of time given to the blessings versus the length of time given to the curses? Well, the curses get three times as much airtime, don't they? And then third, and this is the most important one, have a look at verse 45 of chapter 28. Verse 45 of chapter 28. What do you notice about that verse? You only have to read the first sentence of it. The if is gone. This isn't a hypothetical anymore. What does it say? All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and the decrees he gave you. And just so we're clear, this isn't like an ambiguity in in translation, like will could be like hypothetical still. This is explicitly saying that Israel will make the wrong choice. Now when you put those three observations together, what we're seeing in these particular chapters in Revelation in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is something that we see running through the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's this, it's a pervasive pessimism about Israel's ability to obey. You see, the book of Israel, uh, book of Deuteronomy is dominated by a single question, will Israel obey God? <coughs> But consistently, time and time again, either from the lips of Moses or directly from the lips of God, like in chapter 5, we see the repeated affirmation that Israel cannot do what God requires of them. And so what emerges in Deuteronomy for us is an apparently kind of irreconcilable tension between what Israel is being told to do, to obey God, and Israel being told that they can't do it. And to understand Deuteronomy and to understand how it applies to us today, we need to understand and wrestle with this tension. And so I want to explore those two things in more detail because these are the two things that the law reveals that we need to make sense of. So what does the law reveal as revealer, that third conception of the law? Well, the first is this. If you want a life of blessing, you need to obey God's law. Now, I don't think it's particularly controversial to say that everyone wants to be blessed in the way that this passage talks about. I don't know whether you've kind of wanted a bunch of extra donkeys and the fruit of the womb of donkeys. But that kind of notion of material prosperity, I don't think I've ever met anybody who hasn't wanted that. But usually, I think, when we seek after that sort of life, we think about it in terms of natural law. You see, the universe, it was made in a certain way, and certain actions will lead to certain consequences. So if I can just understand the system and how it works, then I can make choices that are going to result in my good rather than my bad. I think that's how most of us pursue the blessed life, mechanical, impersonal laws of nature. Now, it's true that God made our world in an orderly way. It is predictable. And so there are such things as natural consequences. If you went around and punched everyone in the face that you met, I don't think that your life is going to be very blessed, just just between you and, and me. Right? But, but while there's some overlap here, I actually don't think Moses is talking about the natural cause and effect in God's world. He is talking about the active response of God to the moral actions of his creatures. One of the things I hope you noticed as we read that passage out that that Laney read for us and we looked at the blessings and the curses, I hope that you noticed God's agency. Both the blessings and the curses come from God. So we have the Lord will grant, the Lord will send, the Lord will establish, the Lord will open the heavens as he gives blessings to Israel. And then the Lord will send on you curses, the Lord will cause you to be defeated, the Lord will afflict you, the Lord will drive you out. And that tells us something about our moral reality, doesn't it? It's not impersonal, it's profoundly relational. And the state that we're in, whether it's cursed or blessed, because there's only two states and there's no in-between, the state will depend entirely on whether we are obeying God's commandments or whether we're disobeying them. You see, the things that we do are seen by God and they're assessed by God according to the standard that he sets, the standard to love God with all of your heart and soul and strength. And so if you want to be blessed, you need to meet that standard. And that might scare you a bit, and I think it should, because I think lots of people today think that God accepts them on the basis of their intentions. And If you ask them, oh, if you were to die tonight and you were to face God, would he accept you? And if so, why? And they would answer, well, yes, he would accept me because I meant well. I didn't follow Jesus, but my heart was in the right place. I was sincere when I went and did the things that I went and did. In other words, they think that God's acceptance of them is a test of genuineness, not a test to see whether you've met an actual moral standard, that you've loved him in the way that he has told us to, like we've seen in Deuteronomy. But what Deuteronomy shows us is that that sort of thinking has no basis God has an objective moral standard which is based on his righteous character. And so just like you weigh yourself at the doctor to see if you're sick or healthy, he will weigh us and make the same conclusions. And so if the blessings and the curses show us anything, it's that we want to live a life of blessing. And that means that we should really want to be under the law of God. Because that's the way to get it, right? You obey the law and the blessings flow. So that's the first thing that the law reveals. But here's the second, and this is where the paradox comes back. It reveals to us that we are unable to obey the law. As we've seen, one of the things that is abundantly clear from Deuteronomy is that Israel cannot obey the law. And we know this is true because of what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3. Have a look at this up on the screen. He says this All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written. In the book of the law. Now, the verse he's quoting there is actually a verse from our passage. It's the last of the 12 curses in chapter 27. And in quoting it, what he's saying is that this particular curse captures in a nutshell what the inevitable outcome of following the law will be. Notice the words all, everything, everyone. There is no hope of blessing by works of the law. And yet, weirdly, paradoxically, at this stage in human history, the only hope of blessing. Is works of the law so you're kind of in a catch 22 right and if we don't understand that catch 22 then our response to today's passage is going to be completely wrong we're going to go all right well we want to get blessing then we need to obey God's law but the Bible's very clear on this the purpose of the law is not to give you the criterion by which you can please God and achieve that blessing the purpose of the law is to expose your inability to do so So have a look at Romans 3, for example. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law is supposed to make you so pessimistic that no matter how good you think you are, no matter how self-disciplined and attentive to the matters of God you think you are, you can never pull it off. And so to return to our our three conceptions of the law, what this tells us is that the law is powerless. That's what it reveals. It's not that it's not good. We saw before Paul says that the law is holy and righteous and good, and it reveals the holy character of our God and how we should relate to him. But even though the law is good and it reveals good things, it reveals that we aren't good, and that means it can never be the means by which we secure a relationship with God and so find blessing. Because every time we try, we will put ourselves under the curse of the law, That is the only thing waiting for us so what does the law reveal it reveals two things it reveals god's requirements and our inability to meet them and that creates i think a problem for us because if the law isn't the means to relationship how do we get god's blessing and avoid god's curse it's not going to be through the law we're unable to do what the law requires and this is where appreciating i think both elements of the tension we've been looking at becomes important because it pushes us to consider how we can be found righteous with god apart from the law and this is precisely what paul in galatians 3 picks up and he tells us the answer and the answer is jesus christ so a few verses later after galatians three ten, where we found out everybody is cursed when they rely on works of the law we see him say this christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us For it is written cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to abraham might come to the gentiles through christ jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the spirit and what i want you to see from this passage is two things first of all jesus takes the curse of the law upon himself and then jesus provides the means by which the blessing of abraham can come not just to the jews but to the Gentiles, that's you and me if you're not Jewish, as well. So let's have a look at both of those things. First of all, uh, Jesus takes the curse. This is verse 13. We see it up there. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How does he do that? Well, he's hung on a pole, a tree, a a cross. Uh, And that tells us something, I think, about the nature of Jesus' death. It was a martyr's death, yes, it was principled, it was standing up for a cause, but ultimately it was a curse-bearing death. And not for his disobedience, but for ours. Now we need to be careful here, and I've wrestled a whole bunch of hours with this, but I think I'm there, Um, because as with most of Paul's writings, we need to work out who the us's and the we's and the you's refer to. And I think the us here in verse 13 is not us as Christians, but specifically Jewish Christians, And I'm pretty confident in that because you can only be cursed by the law if you're under the law. And the only people who are under the law are Jews or those who converted to Judaism. And so we need to remember then that what happens to Israel particularly, though, is also true of humanity more generally. We may not be under the curse of the law, but we are all as sinners under the curse of sin and death. The only difference will be how we're held to account. So if you look at Romans 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, I don't think this is actually in the slides, it tells us that all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, but those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. But either way, what we have here in Galatians 3 is hope for the Israelites, or anyone who has put themselves under the covenant law of God, that the law curses them, but Jesus redeems them, and that that death redeems them from the curse of the law, and we know that that death will redeem us from the curse of sin more broadly. So the big picture here is that Jesus deals with the curse. Second, he brings the blessing, and that's what verse 14 is about. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Now, this verse, I think, is really interesting because what you're expecting it to say is that he redeemed us in order that the blessing of the law might come to those who are under the law. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says the blessing given to Abraham. What's the blessing? Now, this is where it's really important to see where Paul takes this. It's not material blessing. So we need to kind of shift out of this mode that what's literally described in Deuteronomy is also for us. It's actually something far more profound. And we see it a little bit earlier in Galatians 3 and verse 6. It tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, perfect obedience. That's the righteousness that we're seeking. That's the thing that will give us the blessing of God. That's the thing that the law can't give us. And look at how we get it. Verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely not on works of the law but on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now the temptation I think that as we see this is that we kind of take this idea and we read it back into Deuteronomy and we go all right if Jesus is the means to blessing then Jesus is the means that we will will have material prosperity Uh, and that's a big issue in the world it's called the prosperity gospel it's all around the place massive in America massive in Africa and it is a misreading of scripture. I still remember when I was in high school, uh, I was in a Christian school, so all the teachers are Christian, um, or at least supposedly, uh, most of them were. This one certainly was my art teacher. And she told me that verse 4 of chapter 28, where it says, the fruit of your womb will be blessed, was a promise for us today that we would never miscarry, that Christians would never be infertile, and that we could hold on to that promise. Uh, And obviously, if if, if it didn't happen, then there was something wrong with us because God had already given his word. But but what I want to say is that that understanding of God's blessing was wrong. And the reason that she was wrong is because she had taken a particular promise of God's blessing given specifically to the nation of Israel at a particular point in history, and she'd universalised it all to all of the people of God. What she was doing is she was thinking as somebody who was under the law, but Christ redeemed people from under the law and brought not the material blessing of prosperity in the promised land, but he brought something better. He brought the true prize, which is justification. Now, don't be phased by that word. It's actually cooler than it sounds. It's not like a dud Christmas present like socks. Justification is the Bible's term for being declared righteous in the eyes of God, completely obedient, and therefore worthy of all the blessings of God. And so what we see in Deuteronomy 27 to 28 in the history and circumstance of Israel is a picture lesson that would be expanded and deepened to represent a much deeper spiritual need that God meets for us in Jesus. Not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. He removes our curse and he offers us the blessing of right relationship with him. And one day Christ will return and he'll establish his people in the new creation and it will be untouched by sin. And that's when the material prosperity will flow. But for now, I think the challenge for us is to understand this. Don't have such a low view of God's blessing so as to restrict it to this life and our material circumstances. What God offers us in the Gospel is so much more valuable and so much more desperately necessary because without it, whether we're under the law or outside of the law, we remain under God's curse and judgment because everybody who relies on works of the law is under a curse. And so like the Israelites, we too have a choice today. But the choice is not to obey or to disobey. We've already seen that we can't do that. And I think that's the biggest mistake Christians can make. We we are saved by grace and then we return to work. This is the Galatians problem. They thought that, okay, I've just got to keep it up. And if I can just maintain a certain way of living, of holiness, then God will accept me. And when something goes wrong, it's because I've done something wrong. that's, That's not how Christians think. Heard it said that our gospel is not do but done. And in Christ, the curse is dealt with, the blessing comes. And so in a very real sense, our behaviour does not alter how God stands and looks upon us anymore. We are blessed always. doesn't mean that we don't strive for holiness, but the reason we do it is different now. It's not because we want to be blessed, but because God has blessed us and made us like him and his son. So we want to behave out of that reality. But no, our choice today is not to obey or to disobey. We can't do it. Our choice is to trust and if you're already a Christian, to continue to trust that in Jesus the curse has been paid, it's gone and removed. You cannot bring it back. But that in Jesus he also brings us blessing because he justifies us such that we can never be turned away from the Lord Jesus or from the face of God. And that's what Paul means there in verse 9 in Galatians when he says, those who rely on faith. How do you avoid God's curse? How do you receive God's blessing? Will you stop putting your trust in your own efforts and instead you place your trust in Jesus Christ? Again and again and again. The one who took the curse, who brought the blessing. It's as simple as that. And that's what the irreconcilable tension of Deuteronomy leads us to. It brings us out of the law and tells us that we need Jesus. Now, there's more that could be said. I think that's enough for one day. We'll be exploring this particular idea for the next two weeks in more detail as different parts of Deuteronomy come up. But for now, how about I pray?